This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Jake Cantor. Coming down the Talking TV slipway this week, we ponder the future of Channel 4 as the government embarks on the Great British sell-off and we'll discuss Clarkson & Co's landmark deal with Amazon. Our interview this week will be with the creative team behind BBC Three's Pitch Perfect mockumentary, People Just Do Nothing. And to round things off, we'll preview Anne Robinson's new BBC One show, Britain's Spending Secrets, and BBC Four's HBO doc, Sinatra All or Nothing at All. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Braving the tube strike here at Talking TV Towers are Helen Veal, the creative director of Outline Productions, and entertainment producer Stephen D. Wright. Welcome to you both. Hello. Talking TV debut. <gasps> Terrified. <laughs> you shouldn't be. We're nice here. Okay. Stephen will tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Stephen's <laughs> nice. It's well known. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a joy, this. It's absolute joy. Your your kindness and I walked, good humour. And... I walked through the crowds for you today, Jake. What crowds? Where? Well, the, the, the masses outside. Okay. I yeah. braved the tube strike for the broadcast. Yeah. Did you see the Root Masters out? I did, actually. Yeah, they're, they're good. I thought that was a nice touch from TFL. Anyway, on to perhaps more pertinent matters. First up this week, it's over to Horse Ferry Road for the latest twist in the phony war over Channel 4's future. Speculation over privatisation persists after it was revealed this week that Chancellor George Osborne is expected to sell off £32 billion worth of public assets to help clear the deficit. The rumours have only been intensified by lobbying from Discovery and American Studios, who have quietly indicated to the government that they would be keen to acquire Channel 4 if given the chance. But broadcast had the inside track from C4HQ this week, where top brass are quietly confident that they can stave off the threat of privatisation by keeping calm and carrying on. Helen, is that the right strategy? I understand where they're coming from with that. I basically think George Osborne has possibly learnt a lesson from Hitler, in that you <laughs> that you can't you cannot fight a war on two fronts. You can't that be. That's <laughs> well, well. I, I hope that at least the, the only lesson I'd be confident and happy that he might have learned from Hitler. Don't fight a war on two fronts. At the moment, he seems to be all his guns facing towards the BBC. I've seen feature films with the artist Jackie Chan, where he's capable of leaping in the air and kicking two people in the face at one time. I'm just not sure that George Osborne is as agile and subtle as that. It makes sense to me strategically. He's got big beef with the BBC. He's got things he's trying to do there. Why take on the entire you know, public service culture when you can pick them off separately? And the DCMS, so can... DCMS is a very small government department. There's only so much resource that they have to yeah. But could he be using the battles. screen of the BBC to be insidiously attacking Channel 4? I don't know. That's just a little Ooh. conspiracy theory. From me over here. But, uh, <laughs> no, because I agree. So we've got I, Jackie Chan and conspiracy theories. Well, yeah, there we go. We've been watching too many films, you know. <laughs> I do my research before these things I do. But no, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. This does seem like a phony war. It does seem like a bit of Channel 4 bigging themselves up because there's no way the Tories are going to turn on Channel 4, which they created anyway. It's Thatcher's legacy, remember, Channel 4, and the fact that it's all about giving the public what they want and giving them diversity and, and business, indies, etc., etc. It is a Thatcherite model, why would they possibly sort of hack it to pieces? It isn't. It doesn't because have it's valuable. The, maybe I don't well, know. it doesn't have the bloated reputation of the BBC. It doesn't have the bad press of the BBC. It isn't, it isn't even that outrageous? I mean, that's the biggest biggest story. That Channel Four is a lot safer and anodyne than it used to be. So not born risky. It's born risky. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. That was a risky decision to go with that phrase. But you know what I mean. It was um, born risky, but it was born 
a little bit a long, of a while ago now. Yeah. And so it isn't an enfant terrible anymore. It's part of our landscape. It's part of our culture. And I do think across the spectrum of things they do, they do still take great creative risks and they back talent and they aren't the terrible, scary, you know, anarchy in the UK mentality. They're a sophisticated international player. They deliver on diversity, they deliver on on good creative risk, but they're grown up and sensible and I don't think anyone needs to start dismantling them now. The BBC, everybody knows, needs a bit of pruning. Definitely needs some work. It doesn't need obliterating, but it needs some pruning. Channel 4, no one's complaining about Channel 4. But if George Osborne's so single-mindedly focused on clearing the deficit so he can launch his prime ministerial campaign... A consummate politician, Lord Sewell called him. ...this week about the bank sell-off. That seemed ideologically motivated, because if you've got some shares in a bank, you probably want to sell them when the share price is good as opposed to when the share price is bad. And there seems to be some ideological agenda why that particular bit of RBS got hoofed off this week. I don't claim to have any understanding of that. So I agree that there is this tick list of assets and that some ideological motivation about why they should get offloaded now. But somehow or other, within the big battle that he's got about BBC and uh, licence fee, I just can't see that it would be strategic or sensible to start wrestling with two public service broadcasters at once. There's this other theory as well that if um, ITV potentially gets sold, looks like an American player might come in. And if American studios and the likes of Discovery are making noises about Channel 4, that the government potentially won't want two big PSBs to fall into the hands of American I mean, that's really bad companies. PR. You know, already the BBC, uh, the, the the BBC war or the war against the BBC has had to been sort of been backpedalled a bit because they know that Tory voters do not want strictly being touched and things like that. So the idea that Channel Four and and some of the shows that people love will suddenly be at risk is not good PR. You know, there's no advantage to the Tories just to take on Channel Four. No, nobody hates it. It doesn't need you know work. Um, nobody hates the BBC. You know, they can attack the BBC on a sort of, you know, 50-year-old grudges, but the Channel 4 doesn't need any... Look at the Daily Mail. The amount of column inches devoted to totting up what the BBC spends or the BBC spends on X or Y is extraordinary, and there isn't the same obsessive attention to the structures and costs and expenses behind Channel 4. So there if used to be. Channel 4 used, used to, be. to be. You can you FOI know. Channel 4. Mm. There's what? Which never happens. So you can FOI Channel 4. What? You can freedom of information request. <laughs> Just don't say that's Channel 4. Is <laughs> FOI <another> yourself. <laughs> public service broadcaster. But um, no, I mean, Channel 4, you know, used to be at the home of Michael Gray, the pornographer-in-chief and all the rest of it. It's not anymore. Channel 4 is, is, is you know, it's all about features and good documentaries and dramas and things. There's no point Award-winning in... winning commitment to diversity and the Paralympics Well, you know, I mean, what, is it, what does it stuff. say about the Tories if they do that? They'd lose their sort of post-Cameron's kind of goodwill to sort of the minorities and all that kind of stuff. All that... Sh- Trying to slough off being the nasty party. Yes, exactly. And whether or not attacking Channel 4 would, the right thing that would be the right thing to do. Okay. On that bombshell, Ooh. shall we move on to our next news item, which is Amazon's landmark deal uh, with the former Top Gear team. Yes, Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond, James May and their producer Andy Wilman have signed a reported £160 million deal to make three series of a yet-to-be-titled motoring show for the US online giant. Uh, Wilman told broadcast this week that the lure of a big budget and complete editorial freedom was too good to turn down after a frantic few weeks of negotiations. Uh, Stephen, do you think this is a smart deal? No. I think it's a hugely bloated corporation chasing money, showing off £160 million to make 
Top Gear. That's about four point five million pounds. I mean, it's an episode, ridiculous, including four, 4. including five million. Their you can fees, make that though. episode. You can make one of those episodes for half a million easy. Easy. You could make it cheaper if you were actually... Not according to Andy Wilman. He said they of used to run... Here's, here's a quote. They used to say they, they used to run run fucking riot with money at the BBC. Uh, this is a guy who thinks he can't shoot at a car without having a gold-plated helicopter taking off. Um, <laughs> I think that notion that at the BBC, the team was so willful that they could run fucking riot with the money and that there was a culture where smacking staff members in the face was a, a misdemeanour rather than an instant sacking offence... Does Amazon have the structures in place to actually control no. how this production no, team don't. operates? No editorial, no inter- editorial interference. interference. I mean, that's a bit disastrous. And the other thing, Amazon's not regulated by Ofcom because they're not a broadcaster or a satellite or a cable. We're talking about transporting a show, which even though it was at the BBC, it wasn't Ofcom, but it was BBC Trusted, mm-hmm. got quite a lot of complaints. And it, they've made their money and their reputation by sailing very close to the wind on issues of taste and decency and, and so on. And I'm just slightly concerned that this quasi-not-broadcaster is going to be taking on this hot potato <laughs> of boys who just like to say bad words because it's funny um, and, and, more, and raise offensive topics. The thing is, Amazon are going to... Uh, the biggest problem with this deal is it's too much money. People are not going to spend to watch Top Gear, you know, the point two or whatever it's called. You don't think so? No. Um, people TikTok don't. They're gear. not. They're literally not going to They've tune. got millions of fans around the world. Millions of fans who will not start paying money when it comes to it. They just will not They'll do it. They'll download it illegally. Is that they, may, they may <laughs> download it illegally, but I, in my gut, this is not going to be a huge mega hit. And that £160 million pounds will, be, will look like a waste of money, guaranteed. I mean, do you not think that there's going to be an increase in subscription? There's, you know, the, I mean, it will be a great marketing tool at the very least, won't it? I mean, when you think about House, house of Cards, you immediately associate it with Netflix. Do you think the same might happen here? No. I, well, I don't know, really. It just... Uh, I mean, they're going to be everywhere when this show launches, isn't it? I mean, the thing about is it's going to be the whole works. When it's for free, it's like, oh, yeah, you, you tune in, you watch it. You don't necessarily go tune in for, on, on Dave to watch repeats. You know what I mean? It doesn't make you get up and go, oh, my God, I've got to get my credit card out. I Even though they're made, showing it at 8pm on a Sunday now. They've made quite a lot of money out of the DVD sales. And some of these naughty word scandals did always seem to coincide rather yeah. nicely with the launch of another one. <laughs> so there are people out there who have consistently shown they're prepared to part with their money to get but a that, bit of this stuff. to me, that's a hardcore. The other thing. It's like an uncle Christmas present. It's but the look, ideal thing to buy for an uncle you don't like very much or don't know very well. Get you know what? Top I think they'd be in a stronger position <laughs> if the BBC weren't relaunching Top Gear with Chris Evans. If Chris Evans wasn't doing the new series of Top Gear, that will, will satiate the, you know, the, more, the mindless male skewing fans who want Top Gear. Whether they'll then spend that extra bit of money. People normally don't spend money to watch TV. They really don't. And um, dramas have a bigger following than top than you know than entertainment fit for formats so it, it, you know as i say in my gut it, this is going to fail but do also, we... i'm not really sure about how the I, I know nothing about the economics of these businesses and how the huge Neither investment in those uh, very 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 high end movie star led dramas actually how that's working out for them right now whether it is at present still a loss leader yeah, in probably. order to establish a yeah. new form of content delivery uh, and how long is it going to stay being a loss leader and when it starts paying back? I have absolutely no idea. You know, it, but it's certainly not clear, even within that, where something content, factual format content that feels you a bit know, one more thing, ephemeral one, even. Amazon are making tons of money. They don't pay tax. They get you know they undercut everybody, and they are you know cash rich, so they might as well splash their money out. 
But what I think this will do, if anything, like the sort of House of Cards argument with Netflix, is it raises the quality of the of the, the channel. Amazon Prime will start to become taken seriously by other people. It might bring in in other talent, other other ideas, other whatever. So that to me might have an effect. But as to bringing in thousands or millions of extra viewers, I don't think so. Time now for our commission of the fortnight. This week it goes to Channel 5 and its plans to adapt US cable network Spike's hit karaoke format Lip Sync Battle. Both broadcasters are owned by Viacom, meaning Channel 5 would have neatly avoided paying a format fee for the in-demand show, which in the US has featured stars including Anne Hathaway and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, miming their favourite songs. Uh, The UK version will be made by WizKid Entertainment, the production company behind formats including Let's Dance for Comic Relief, and Channel 5 hopes it can be a springboard to other entertainment commissions. Uh, Have either of you seen this in the US I haven't watched a whole show I've watched, You've watched the bits really on really really funny bits on YouTube and I'm really excited to see it on telly I just think it looks hilarious if they manage to attract the quality of celebs that the uh, American the key, format it, books then absolutely brilliant it's the, just the quality it's of the addictive and funny. that American gung-ho-ness because the big the American thing really works because huge stars really throw themselves into it. There's see, no embarrassment. You know what I mean? Let's start no... comic relief. I thought the BBC were a bit embarrassed about that. At first. They didn't seem to sort of you know mm. blow the trumpet for it. But it was great. They got great comics doing funny stuff mm. that you could sit down and watch together and go to the office. Did you see so and so doing that? And I feel Lip Sync Battle could be exactly that. Mm. But that's BBC One Saturday Night Prime Time, isn't it? This is but Channel got, Five. I understand that Stephen Merchant is consulting on this he's the exec so he's going to bring that stardust he's going to bring that stardust he's going to bring the guarantee that they're making the same show Mm. and UK celebs have watched those funny 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 clips on the internet and I think they might want to go on the ride well they do absolutely gangbusters online as well millions and millions of views what was that show that Channel 5 launched with with the the monkey um, doing the karaoke show on a Saturday night. Remember that? I don't remember Suggs that. Suggs presented it. Come on. <laughs> I don't remember I remember sorry. Suggs. I've you know, said the monkey. It was a monkey. Mind and you, it, was I was... A, it was a karaoke show on a Saturday night and it was... Night fever. Night fever, there you go. I've suddenly remembered. That's great. That's But you know what I mean? Night fever, they've done karaoke before. It does work. But only if they are prepared to go To really go for it. On it. The ambition to deliver entertainment good formats. I, I, I'm quite excited by what they're doing. They good. definitely need entertainment. They, you mm, know, they it has, it's got a bit grim and a bit kind of council flat-esque. Well, this will a, be the litmus test, won't it, according exactly. to Ben Frail this week? You know, I mean, if, it, if, if this can come on, a blue chip entertainment format and work and make people feel joy, which is what you're supposed to do, then, you know, that's the, that can only be a good thing for Channel 5. All right. Those are your headlines for this week. Thanks to Stephen and Helen. <laughs> Up next, it's time to head to Brentford for BBC Three comedy People Just Do Nothing. After originally blazing a trail on YouTube and then iPlayer, the Rough Cut TV mockumentary is now in its second series and has become something of a cult hit, averaging more than 300,000 viewers. Created by first-time writer Steve Stamp and his friends, it follows the lives of MC Grinder and DJ Beats, who run pirate radio station Corrupt FM in West London. We'll hear from some of the gang in a moment, but here's a little flavour of the second series. Grinder and Beats explain how important Jamaica is to them and their music. That's motherland Jamaica, that's where everyone comes from, with your white or black, do you know what I mean? Because what happened was this big 
stone mm. banged into the world, yeah, because mm. the world was just one like bit of land. And it was just dinosaurs and, it, and that. And then. dinosaurs and that, and then it Expl exploded, and then all the dinosaurs and the land got separated. But originally, the stone was Jamaica. <laughs> Uh, so joining me in the studio is People Just Do Nothing's producer John Petrie. Hello. And writer Steve Stamp. Welcome to you both. Thanks Thank for you. coming in. Um, so you started on YouTube. Indeed. Yeah. Where did these characters come from? Various places really, like inspired by people we'd met growing up. We uh, A few of us grew up in Brentford. All of us grew up in West London. And uh, yeah, they were all kind of drawn from various kind of people we'd grown up with. Sipa, who plays Grinder, had done pirate radio as well, and me and Beats had done a little bit of pirate radio, so we kind of knew that world a little bit. And Asim's character, Jabuddy G, was kind of... I think he won't mind me saying it, it's basically based on his dad. He's kind of admitted that now, so I think, <laughs> I think they're over that. And but, yeah. you're in the show yourself, aren't you? Yeah, and my character's Steve. He's, he's basically just a sort of a mess, really, like takes loads of drugs and... Uh, that was based on Spent uh, like most, every most episodes looking completely vacant. <laughs> yeah, uh, which I'm hopefully not completely like that now. Um, so you can see I'm slightly different in real life. I think every group of friends has a Steve's sort of character who overdoes it, so everyone can kind of relate to that. And why do you think the characters have resonated, John? I, I think Steve's hit, hit it on the head there. I think even though they they come from a pirate radio background, I think everyone does sort of recognise that person, whether it's just someone you've sat and hear on a bus or, you know, I hear, I meet so many people from people just in everyone when I go and watch Palace play, you know, in, <laughs> in the crowds. But that's what lots of people say. But it seems to resonate more, you know, with, with a lot of people that you just wouldn't expect, which has been quite a nice surprise, really. Um, when you started out, it was all improv, wasn't it? But now yeah. you're, you know, obviously fully scripting your episodes. Talk to me mm. about that that process of, of moving between those two disciplines. We always liked the idea of uh, improv, and we still do a bit of improv around the scripted stuff. But yeah, it was kind of when we got the um, script commissioned by Rough Cut, and we pitched them the idea of doing like a beat sheet kind of Kirby Enthusiasm style, like where it could be a lot looser. And we wrote this one page sort of thing of bullet points of like what the episode would be like and so they what, kind so of you basically set the parameters for a scene and then let the exactly get on with it yeah so there is a plot and everything and there's things to hit but then yeah when we, when we showed them that they just sort of they just looked at it and were just like i don't know if, i don't think the bbc are gonna kind of go for this and also i wanted to write i wanted to be a script writer anyway so i was kind of like all right let me take this challenge on and learn how to do this and it was a good way of kind of jumping in at the deep end and so you were le learning it. on the on the job. As yeah, it exactly. Yeah, the first pilot script we did, I was working as well in like a university, um, doing an admin job and kind of doing that after work and going in for meetings with Ash and John at like after six p.m. and sort of talking through after a day's work, talking through all their notes for my like this script. And we did about. 14 drafts or something yeah lots of phone calls where you'd have to sort of go hang on a second i've just got to go outside and like, yeah harsh tones but yeah. yeah i think it was just the you knowing it was sort of reassuring them if they had a script it was a sort of safety net and you know we knew we had guaranteed funnies and then you can we get that down and then they could go and play and I've, i'd say 20 percent of the show is probably impro so you still keep a little wiggle room to definitely to yeah and it's mm. and it's quite exhausting process um the bit you just played was improv was it? Yeah, yeah, that was completely <laughs> just off the top of 
Hugo's head. Nice. Yeah. And what about when you're sort of do, doing the the corrupt FM stuff, the the actual MCing, and is that that's, is that off yeah, the cuff or? Yeah, that's all. Seepers like uh, the guy who plays Gran is really amazing. Like at, he's genuinely good at that. Like, that yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. And you'll hear new lyrics every time he does it, and you're just kind of like, where does this come from? <laughs> he's just like, yeah, he's just naturally good at it. Well, good in a funny way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you spot it on YouTube originally at you and you and I got or? no Jabuddy the guy who plays Jabuddy G Asim actually I used to run a comedy film night we where we sort of sort of played internet comedy films and Asim sent it we had a sort of thing where you could submit your films and Asim sent the first episode but very it was too long entrepreneurial sort of yeah very very entrepreneurial then. of him then I sort of followed its progress and then Ash came in and mentioned that his mate had seen it. I thought there was something in it, cut together a taster tape, and then we sort of took it around, and BBC gave us a comedy feed from it. Which is the uh, the sort of online pilots, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And it, of, was, it became one of the most shared pieces of content on iPlayer. Yeah, it? yeah, it did. Yeah, and it does really well on iPlayer. It's, it's, sometimes it's quite disheartening when you look at the, the ratings, because it's just because our audience, like last week's episode, got 40% of 16 to 34-year-olds, so it does really well with the younger audience but they don't watch as much telly so but yeah it's exciting but you're picking up traction on online yeah i mean it gets which is where it's born i guess so yeah uh, we had um a clip where the guy's going to dragon's den sort of just before it one went out and it got a million hits in under 24 hours so it's it's sort of slowly catching i mean this is only the episode that went out last night is effectively only the eighth episode i think yeah. So, you know, it's only half halfway through a first series, effectively. Are you aware of that during your general sort of development processes at Rough Cut nowadays, that comedy has to be clickable? Yeah, I think it's quite hard for Steve and, and the other guys because there's so much demanded of them from all the extra content. And, and the good thing about doing lots of impro is that we can cut together, um, you know, reels and, and sort of post little bits and bobs up, but... I think you just have to have lots of shareable stuff, but it's but it's harder and there's less money. So it, it does feel like if you don't have a carefully constructed social media type strategy, then you're not going to do as well. You're not going to draw in as many people. And so it, how have you done that for people just doing nothing? We've kind of been winging it, but it's it's uh, <laughs> we've, we've all got we've all got Twitter accounts now. We've like each of the characters has got Twitter accounts, and um, so we've been sort of having conversations in character on Twitter and kind of talking to the fans and everything like that are you writing that yourself or? yeah we're all we're all just sitting at home to, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then we've got like a facebook page and we um we've been doing a few little bits of extra content like small videos and uh we've been also been doing club nights and actually going to like clubs and festivals in character doing dj sets and stuff so sort of taking corrupt fm into the music world as well which people are reacting to really well. So you're actually sort of just crossing boundaries and yeah. blurring lines and now it's just becoming a real thing. No, it's just like, yeah, it's sort of weird. Because you did a Radio 1 Extra takeover, didn't you? Yeah, we've done a few sort of radio takeover type things and like we did Rinse FM the other day. Do people it's... get that you're, you're, I don't know. you're, doing, I think some... you're doing comedy? <laughs> I think some people probably don't. I think it's, it's not so gag related. It's more like character based or like observational. And, and it's, I feel like sometimes people take a while to realize that we're actually not serious but <laughs> yeah. 
It's definitely is... a, a sort of slow burner, and then I think once you're in, once you believe those characters, and yeah. it's right. so fun on Twitter watching people sort of slagging it off, and yeah, so I can't believe the BBC let job. people. <laughs> yes, they need to get a job. <laughs> given uh, given that you guys have got this online following, and and that's where you started, are you reasonably philosophical about BBC Three moving online? Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame because. Being on TV, the first series, they put it all out on iPlayer in one hit, and 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 that was it was a shame because the guys wanted to be on TV. But you know, we have been reassured that everything will be shown on BBC Two, and I think we kind of have to trust in that. But obviously, things are changing, and I think we just want to make the show. Hopefully, yeah. people will come to it. Yeah. So you are you thinking about a third series? Is that? Is that on the radar? We we've got plans. We'd love to make one. <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll put it on YouTube. You'll do it regardless of whether <laughs> yeah. BBC Three comes in or not. Yeah, yeah. Just have a much much lower budget. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, all the best with it, and uh, good luck with the rest of the series, uh, which continues on the twelfth of August at ten pm. Uh, we've reached our third and final act, which can only mean that it's time for some previews. Uh, Stephen D. Wright and Helen Ville are back with me, and our first glimpse into the crystal ball of telly's future is BBC One's Britain's Spending Secrets. Uh, the Garden's two-part series follows watchdog star Anne Robinson as she investigates how Britain's shopping habits reveal who we are and what we aspire to be. Here, she goes to work in the first episode, examining the spending of a single mum on benefits. Okay, first up, Charlotte. She is the perfect punch bag. She's on benefits, one of two million single parents in the UK. She's two small children and another baby is on the way. She's been threatened with eviction twice. She's in debt for thousands. How did she get in such a pickle? Why? I've come to Milton Keynes to spend some time with Charlotte at her home. Come on, Mads. Let's go. Oh, I love the fridge. What attracted me to this fridge, personally, was the fact the water dispenser's there and the light on the fridge. I know it sounds silly, but when you open it up, it makes my freezer blue. So that's what attracted me to the fridge what, freezer. What's the advantage of making your freezer look blue? I don't know. I think it's just when at night when you want an ice cream or something, you could just go in the bottom of your drawer and get that ice cream out. <laughs> uh, who wants to start us on this? I'll start. My heart sank a little bit when I turned this on because I thought, oh, here we go. It's another one of these kind of, you know, shows and everything. And I'm not a huge fan of Anne Robinson. And then slowly, slowly, I started to get into it because it did really go through the kind of the ridiculous spending habits and pretensions of every class. Initially, I was a bit worried about the kind of the family wife swap kind of format point. Which was a little bit odd. It felt a little bit like it had been shoved in there, but actually started to become really interesting because you could see the enmity between the sort of two families, the ones that had no money and the ones that were kind of spending left, right and centre. And I ended up really enjoying this show. I mean, I particularly enjoyed her going, Anne Robinson going into the kind of crusty new age camp and eating the rubbish food and stuff like that, but them still trying to impress their neighbours. I mean, so it did have quite a lot of sort of fun elements in and it did sort of teach me something about the spendthrift habits of the Brits. Very well cast, I thought. I thought it was beautifully cast. I thought it was beautifully shot. The Garden really know what they're doing. They make gorgeous telly. 
But I found it was a bit of a game of two halves. I really enjoyed watching Anne Robinson meeting these different characters. I'd love to have spent more time with them. And I felt that the the listeners won't really get from the clip that there are moments in the in the, in the show when Anne Robinson goes and spends time with people with different sorts of spending habits. And it's compelling. And then there's a strange bit in the middle, like a spending-based wife swap, where two families with different budgets and different spending habits observe each other's spending habits and then get increasingly fucked off with each other and look absolutely furious and fit to kill without appearing to learn anything. Or it, there's goes, be any, it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. That, that no redemptive ending. Not even a bit where they go back to their family and go, well, I thought we were hard up, but I'm glad that we're not twats like them. Or It, it just felt really very odd. And I, I felt that that could be interesting because it really was making each of these two families unbelievably judgmental and furious with each other. But I felt it deserved its own show, mm. a, a proper spending-based uh, social experiment. You could see the tension. But because it was condensed down into about three short bites of it, I could just say by the end of it, the last soundbite from richer father being unbelievably judgmental about the spending habits of poorer family, mm. looking like he was about to have steam come out of his ears. And you couldn't quite no, work out how he got that wound up. And, and it just didn't go anywhere. And it didn't feature Anne Robinson. And it kind of cut between the two things. I, I thought both sections yeah. were great, but I'd much rather seen a film where I got to see Anne Robinson spending more time with crusties and multimillionaire mm. traders and being able to draw some more conclusions and to challenge them more about their lives rather than having parachuted in to observe. Mm. And then this really bizarre sort of a social experiment simply designed to leave people wretchedly fucked off with what other people do with their money <laughs> and having learnt nothing. I thought it was a bit strange. And, I, and maybe they did learn something, but there wasn't time within the format for us to follow them home mm. and see gonna whether do, they were going to spend... They're going to do another story then be in, another, the, in the second next episode. Next episode will be another pair of different spending was, yeah. families mm. loathing each other over a 15-minute trunk, I mean, you know... With no resolution. With no but resolution. I mean, you're right. There was no... There was no nobody learnt anything or nobody did anything. No one changed. It was a very surface look mm. of, you know, the girl with benefits. I, I love spending money. I've learnt nothing the, the but does gi- it need to change is, well this is the thing I don't, I don't, you know craves bit, resolution the Anne Robinson it? bit didn't need to change but I think if you take the effort of making somebody observe somebody else's spending habits make them go live in their house for three days they said three days and then you cut that down into this tiny thing where you honestly don't know what they feel about it or whether they're going to draw anything from it. Mm. I mean, really, it just seems a bit strange. And I'm sure they did learn something, perhaps reinforcing their own views about money or making them more critical of other views about money. But I didn't feel... I don't. Necess- I do think you're right. TV does demand an easy fix and a resolution and we need, we need the act in the middle for things to look a bit tricky mm. and for all to be sorted at the end. But it just seems a bit of a strange thing to have done. What about Anne Robinson, though? What do you think about her? Because she's a kind of multi-millionaire. I thought she was great. She constantly she claims to have company. come from the, the you know, the, the working class <laughs> background. But she didn't hide you do that. Do not though. believe that for one. I love that she's journeying between different uh, different yeah. characters. I mean, she got posher and posher the way she spoke. I thought she she was a revelation. I thought she, it was great fun to see her with these different characters, mm. getting getting everybody inside, keeping everybody inside, exploring these different worlds. I just wanted more of it. I wanted. Uh, there's a, a bit later a bit on in the film where she meets a multi-millionaire guy who's made his money self-made, from trade, yeah. self-made guy, who says he's got this vast, blingy um, mansion. Well, the, the, he says, oh, the, the wife likes to do the cleaning. She doesn't have a clean. She just She's house proud. She likes to do it. We didn't see the wife. We didn't meet the wife. <laughs> yeah. I'd love a sequence of Van Robinson helping this woman mop up the vast palace. feels like the garden have done an extraordinary job to get access to the most incredible characters. Mm 
popping Anne Robinson in there, I think, is a stroke of genius. I just wanted a bit more of it, all of it. Okay, well, maybe you get it in the second episode. So. Uh, so, Britain Spending Secrets launches on 19th of August at 9pm on BBC One. Oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I know you've just shut that down. I did want to make a comment that I believe I regret in life that I decided to become a TV producer and not a xylophone player because this is one of those shows that's got that bingly bongly music that's now compulsory for in all factual all documentaries. I would be as minted as the trader with the vast palatial home that I have to clean myself had I paid attention. In school, learn how to play the xylophone. All the glockenspiel, I could rock either of them. Glockenspiel, man. Glock it up. Glock and roll. Glock and roll, because that bingly bongly music, (laughs) it seems now we cannot make factual programmes without it. Okay, well look. Don't leave We'll stick with music, shall we? Mm. Mm, Moving neatly on. Smooth as anything. (laughs) Finally this week, we hop over to BBC4 to croon away the rest of the show with a bit of Frank Sinatra. Uh, Yes, the channel is preparing to air HBO's four-hour opus on the American singer's life, titled Sinatra All or Nothing. At all. In this clip, we hear from old Blue Eyes himself on his early days. Now I was on the air twice once at night and one in the morning. And then I got fan mail. And I'd get little postcards, two postcards, three postcards, and girls would write to me, you know, penny postcards. And I'd go and look in there right away and see if I how much mail did it get any bigger. Never got any bigger. People began to hear me. And they were saying, Jesus, you're getting better. You really, we see the difference in what's happening. Stephen, you weren't a fan, were you? I'm not a fan of Frank Sinatra, but I'm a huge fan of Frank Sinatra's life because it's one of the most interesting and compelling stories of rags to riches and all the rest of it in uh, American history. But I found this documentary to be sort of very leaden, very old-fashioned. It never used a talking head. It only used voices. So you never saw the people talking. And to me, that, that meant pace-wise it slowed right down it was difficult to tell because it was just a con- it was like listening to the radio basically with pictures although the story is there they sanitized it because this was done un- with approval of the Frank Sinatra estate you know Frank Sinatra's mother was famously a backstreet abortionist um, but they would you know they talked did mention that but they, they mentioned it in what she needed to do in she, difficult well exactly that's the thing now they could have said that and and been honest about it you know there's no judgment here she was you know this was a poverty struck household there was crime and everything. And this woman was essentially Vera Drake, you know, in the Mike Lee way. She was uh, the backstreet abortionist for the community. But that was kind of washed over and whitewashed. And as soon as that kind of came up, it was like, what are they going to do when it comes to the mafia, the beating up the women, the everything else? And it started to become a bit like, oh, I'm watching a sort of a, a sanitized, sort of quite slow and quite sort of, you know, a loving documentary. And it's like, I, I prefer these to have a little bit more bite, a little bit more insight. But it was nice I mean, music. You are going to run into that problem if it's Frank Sinatra's voice and Frank Sinatra's interviews telling you mostly well, about Frank Sinatra's Well, if it's Frank Sinatra's, Sinatra's estate making the documentary, uh, definitely. Yeah. You know, this this wasn't... Uh, it didn't feel like an objective documentary. No, it felt like uh, a hagiography with all these difficult, dark parts of his life. Not completely airbrushed out, but... But hushed up. Airbrushed like a yeah. skincare like, commercial. Yeah. <laughs> Um, lightly, I have to say I quite concealed. enjoyed it. I quite I really got into the vibe. It, yeah. What I really loved, um, Frank Sinatra was an old guy when I first became aware of his music. So it was a real revelation to see that he was an absolute teen sensation. Oh, Women right. screaming, queuing for hours, the Bobby Soxers, the One Direction of his time. I thought that was quite enjoyable. And the other thing, I didn't know the story, his sort of political connections. I knew about the mob and, mm. I, didn't, and I knew about the dodgy mother and all these sorts of things. I didn't really know that he was... 
quite a campaigner on racial issues and on the acceptance of diversity and so on, which just seems a bit out of keeping with what I know about the brawling, womanising well, I mean, mobster. His, and I thought that was quite interesting. His story is incredible. I mean, he was involved in everything from the sort of 40s onwards. But you don't necessarily get... And that's the thing, it's terrible if you... It, it, it had the story, but it didn't have the full story. And if we're getting a four-hour documentary, it should be the full story. The other thing I really thought about it is, if I, not that I had, gone into BBC4 saying, I'd like to make a documentary approved by the Frank Sinatra estate, based on all the Frank Sinatra estate's archive, will you give me the money? I think they might have said no. I think they might have expected a bit more journalistic bite and Rigor. not necessarily muckraking, but because it's HBO, they've got through the door. Somebody else has made it. The BBC's bought it and is doing mm. a, a reversion, just changing the duration of the parts. But I do think that if the BBC themselves were commissioning a documentary series about Frank Sinatra's life, it would have a bit more crack and and, and fizz to it. Yeah. Do you know? I, I quite like the slower pace. It took a little getting used to. I mean, it's, 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 it's a stylistic yeah, thing, yeah. and it but certainly it once worked. you're into it, it was... I mean, it, it worked with the black and white photos. It worked with the sort of the 1940s music. It, you know, it felt old fashioned, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not an old fashioned documentary. It felt like it was from 20 years ago. That was what to me. It mm. felt like it'd been made in the 70s, and sort of stuck there or whatever. And we're finally watching it now. It's like no, no. It's I enjoyed made. watching it because the 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 archive was beautifully researched, and the family archive photos of the kids, and it was very comprehensive. And the the sort of behind the scenes pictures were great. But I happened to catch a BBC Four music documentary. Just I was gooning around over the weekend watching. I think it's called this. History of Sound something, 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 which was a BBC Four own commission documentary about how sound recording techniques have influenced oh, yeah. developed I watched pop that music. Amazing it, which series. was great. Mm. And it had that, it had fabulous archive, it had access to the right people, mm. but it came at it with a bit of a journalistic angle that, that just added that mm. BBC4 sparkle to it that, that perhaps mm. for me this didn't have. Okay. Sinatra All or Nothing at All begins tonight on BBC4 at 9 pm. And that is your lot for this episode. Thanks to my guests, Helen Veal, Stephen D. Wright, John Petrie, and Steve Stamp. We're going to take a short summer break, but we'll be back with a bang for the Edinburgh International Television Festival when we'll have a special episode featuring an interview with one of the television execs brave enough to venture into the Big Brother house. And regular listeners will be very familiar with this voice. Say no more. Until then, why not enjoy some of our back catalogue? We have more than 50 episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just the ticket for the beach. For now, though, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Happy holidays. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 